There are 168 hours in the week, but most of us only use one of those to know God, find freedom, discover our purpose, and make a difference. And this week in the 167, we're going to make room for doubt and check in on my boy Job. Welcome to the 167. Hey, welcome back to the 167, and we are here uh, talking about Easter. Easter yeah. was a big Sunday. Man, it was. We were back in house, in person. Uh, it was a full house. We had lots of folks with us, uh, cracked the 1,000 mark. Yeah, it was great to see so, you guys back, all yeah, the people that so. came back and uh, shared Easter with us live and in person, and even the people that were joining us online. Yep, we had a, uh, a fabulous Easter celebration. Yeah, and so, you know... I don't know what Easter was like for you growing up. When I was, you know, Easter, it was Easter cantatas. Funny story. So I didn't grow up in church. Oh, that's true. Right? So uh, we were not a church-going family. But on Easter, true story, uh, we would get dressed up, we'd put on like really nice clothes, and we would go to the drive-in movie theater, who then had a Easter service just on Easter Sunday at the drive-in movie theater, so we would pull into the parking stall, get the speaker for the kids. It's, well. It's like a Bluetooth it, speaker, but with a cord. It, there you go. So we'd put the speaker uh, in our car window, and we would listen to a sermon, and then we would go eat lunch. Was it live, or was it like shown as a movie? You know, I, I think it was live, the best I can remember. So I was just a kid. Uh, it's just, it's pretty weird when I think about it. So Did you have um, a little mini seersucker suit? Uh, you know, I don't remember the exact suits that we wore or clothes, but they were really nice. Like we yeah. we dressed up for Easter. You can't, put on, can't wear your play clothes. No, to go to the drive-in movie theater to listen to a sermon on a really bad <laughs> speaker. So <laughs> I grew up uh, Church of Christ, and so it was a lot of. We actually did a really good, um, like for Good Friday, we do an Easter pageant. You know, like where yeah, we actually yeah. put people up. We had holes in the stage where you'd erect crosses and, you know, somebody would be up there in a diaper, which I was always like, it was whoever had a six pack abs and the, yep, you're the, you're the winner. So, <laughs> so we did that and then it was a lot of hellfire. Um, but yeah, so I, I thought it was really interesting this week of your choice of topic. So we came into Easter with a series um, about doubt. Yeah. So I thought, man, we get all excited about celebrating Easter, and like I mentioned in the sermon, it's like the Super Bowl Sunday of the church world, and we get all pumped up about it. And what we're celebrating is, to a lot of people, just ludicrous. It is uh, unfathomable that somebody could resurrect from the dead and then walk around and talk to people and and be alive after they were beaten and crucified, and it's a hard concept to believe. And so I thought, well, if there's going to be people, many of them who are skeptics, that'll come to church on Easter, then I just wanted people to know it's okay, regardless of 
you know, where you are in your faith journey, an atheist, an agnostic, uh, you know, somewhere in between, or, you know, a passionate follower of Jesus that, you know, if you got questions, if you got doubts, uh, you're struggling with things, hey, this is a great place, and you're in good company. And so this series is going to look at a few different people in Scripture that really wrestled with uh, who Jesus was, uh, some of his actions, and they struggled in their faith. Cool. It's just kind of funny to me sitting there thinking about it because you're like, yeah, it's like the Super Bowl. I'm like, that would be like if the Super Bowl did a Super Bowl halftime show about why you should care about football. Like, yeah, we're like, kinda. <laughs> so it's just like, hey, welcome. Like this, I mean, it's really important to us. And then going, you don't think this is important. Let me tell you why you should care about this. Yeah. So, but no, we had a great time and uh, hopefully everyone enjoyed uh, that time of worship. But then they were intrigued enough by the topic of doubts and questions being okay. Uh, you know, they come back, invite some friends, and it begins a, a little deeper journey of theirs uh, to know God uh a little better. Well, and that's, I think that's the thing is a lot of people view that as a really uncomfortable thing. They think that if you have doubts, you don't belong in church. And it's really the opposite. I mean, like, that would be like saying, I need to research a topic, but I'm not going to go to the library. Yeah. It, this is a safe place, man. It, it should be a place where you come and you look around and you kind of get your feet wet and you, you feel comfortable at any level, uh, asking questions, getting involved, pursuing uh, a relationship with Christ. So, yep. Well, and you you did that by talking about kind of the disciples' reaction to the resurrection, that Jesus died, he came back, and then kind of catching the disciples and saying, hey, this is how they reacted to that. So can you tell me a little bit more about that? That was probably the, the first part of what you were talking about is saying, you know, how they weren't even really certain about what was going on. Yeah, it, you know, so this wasn't something I just discovered this week. It's something that you know, I've known and read, and um, it's impacted me in a, in a pretty substantial way over the years uh, as I've wrestled with some of my own questions and doubts and not understanding exactly how God works. And um, But that one little phrase where it said that they went to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go, and he met them there after the resurrection, and then it says, some of them worshiped and some doubted. Mm. And that phrase, some of them doubted, just jumped out to me as powerful, that there are situations and there are times in life when I'm in a group of people and they're worshiping and I have questions and I don't really feel like worshiping. I'm not in a posture of worship. And I, I think... Like I believe that having read that and understanding that uh, passage in that environment they were in, that Jesus was okay with that, that Jesus was okay with the ones who doubted. He didn't cast them out and judge them and condemn them. Uh, he welcomed them and then continued to reveal himself even more and more. Yeah. Well, and then... What was interesting about that, especially like you made this point uh, in your sermon, you said that there's room for doubt in the presence of Jesus. Like you said, with the disciples saying they're in the same room, like it makes me think of Thomas, you know, where he shows up and the dude like appears through the door. (laughs) It's like, peace be with you. And you're like, "Ah!" you know, Ah. yeah. And it's like, and you have Thomas who probably feels pretty stupid at that point, but Jesus is like, no man, like 
put your finger in there. You know, yeah, like, and, I, and I think that people stay away from church and uh, keep Jesus at an arm's distance when they're in those seasons of doubt because of judgment and criticism uh, maybe that they expect from Christians, and often rightfully so, uh, to expect it because Christians uh, can tend to be critical or judgmental of people who you know, have some doubts and questions. And so the church, I don't think, has typically been a place where you can come and ask the questions um, for whatever reason. And so we keep people away, when in reality, we all wrestle with those things. We just camouflage them, we hide them, we pretend uh, that we don't have them, and we just plow through uh, whatever we're going through with this appearance that everything's good when internally there's something gnawing at us that we need answers to that we're not getting because we're not being honest with God and asking the questions. And so uh, we just pretend, or you know, the word that I use oftentimes is we become posers uh, in the church and we're pretending to be something and yeah. we're not. Why do you think... What is it that you think that Christians are so scared of when it comes to doubt? Uh, you know, I, I think it's just been so ingrained that we're supposed to have this faith and walk by faith and live by faith and exhibit faith, and all those things are absolutely true, uh, that that should be the, the primary characteristic of our life, that we live and, and move and, and talk in faith and but there are times when we just wrestle with that, and we're in a place where we don't see what's happening, and we're not, we're not full of faith, and we feel less than, or we feel like um, you know, we're not good Christians if mm. we have doubt. And so uh, we don't want to you know, look bad. We don't want to portray something in a negative light, and so we don't feel like we can share those doubts with people. So kind of fear of being ostracized by the community, like people will look down on us. Um, I just think about in my own life, I feel like, like, I you know, I think you and I have spoken enough to say, like, I think we've both gone through those questions. I mean, I don't think that you can seriously take your faith seriously without really wrestling with deep questions. Okay. But I always feel like in sense that there's this fear that if there's one small hole in the armor that the whole thing comes, you know, it's just like, if I doubt God on one issue, I'm going to lose my whole faith. Yeah. And, you know, I just, I don't think that's true, but I think the enemy wants us to believe that it's true. When what I, what I believe is true is that that little chink in the armor, you know, that little hole, that's an area that we become susceptible to attack what we need to be doing is addressing that, fixing that hole, making sure that it's you know taken care of and our armor is solid. And if that means we've got to ask some questions and dig deeper and expose some things in our own lives and um, you know dig deep and to get that fixed, then that's what we should do. But the easy thing to do is just bypass it and pretend we don't have it and just keep moving which ultimately makes us more vulnerable and susceptible to attack and failure and defeat. Oh yeah. I mean like, that's like, like I said, if there was like a, 
you said like a chink in the armor or like if we're a machine, if there's one little bug and we just go, nope, like I'm just, yeah. I always think about my car where like the check engine light comes on and my response is to turn the radio up louder. Yeah. It's just one <laughs> like, light, you know, let's yeah. pretend it's not there and I'm not going to ask any questions. We're but just, then that thing starts setting off this other, it starts overheating yeah. the engine, which then does this and then, then yeah. and like, and then it ends up being something huge. Exactly. And, but one of the things that you said in your message that was striking, because it seems to go to this point where it's kind of this false dichotomy of, I have to put blinders on to everything in my life and just go, it's just faith. It's just faith. It's just faith. It's like, I'm a bad person if I doubt anything about God. And then the, the other choice of, well, this whole thing just felt, you know, like I don't believe in God. God's not just, he's not a good God. And so there's this false dichotomy that that bridge is so short, you know, like it's just one thing away because you said something in your message. You said that you should worship, like even in the presence of doubt, even in the, you know, in the midst of being in doubt that we should worship God and that that should be our response. And I think that is such a foreign thing to people to like, like I, you feel bad. Like you said, like I come into worship and I'm like, I'm not in the vibe of worship and I'm doubting, like I'm a bad person. I'm a bad Christian. And it's like, but you're challenging us to, to worship in the midst of that. And I thought that was so great. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Like, how am I, how do I do that? How do I come in with doubt, but still worship Christ? Yeah. So jumping ahead uh, in the series, just a little bit. So in a couple of weeks, spoiler alerts. Yeah. Spoiler alert. So in a couple of weeks, I'll be talking about Thomas and Thomas had some serious questions and doubts uh, about Jesus' resurrection. And here again, in his presence. So Jesus shows up and Thomas is still, doubting, and Jesus welcomes him and invites him and says, just worship. Here, put your put your finger right here in my hand. Put your hand in my side. Get close to me. Come into me and just experience me. You know, in my mind, that means he's just welcoming him in to know him more deeply. We would call that having a moment of worship, of ascribing worth and value to Jesus. And Thomas, who was um, skeptical, now becomes like a believer because he came close to God. He worshiped him. And then, you know, he had a very um, passionate proclamation in that encounter that we'll talk about in the message in a couple of weeks. But um, I think our response in, in the midst of doubts is either to run completely away and discredit everything about God or to run towards him, lean into him and worship because we're in that in-between space. We have some belief and some unbelief. And I think, again, Jesus just wants us to say, um, I'm going to lean into my, my belief more than my unbelief, and I'm going to pursue that. And I'm going to let that inspire me and build me instead of my unbelief. It's a choice. Yeah, I think that's so good. Like I, when you were talking about that, I just got this picture of um, kind of that poking and prodding where it's like, what an intimate thing that is of come and touch me, you know, where it's just like, I'm I'm scared of you. I'm not really sure what's going on here. Well, then come close, you know, cut that come closer yeah, vibe yeah. where it's like, I, I thought about uh, the girls we watched hook this past week with Peter Pan. And like, mm-hmm. there's a moment where like, they're not sure if he's Peter Pan cause he's old. And then the kid comes up and he starts playing with his face and then he makes him smile. And he's like, Oh, there you are. Like, and it's this, like, just this really intimate thing. I think of 
you don't think I'm here. Come, come touch me, you know, like come closer, come examine this thing. Don't, you know, don't distance yourself. I think that's so good. Yeah. And learning is all about inquiring information, asking questions. Um, it often involves uh, having doubts about the, the answer that you received. Mm-hmm. So in mathematical equations or historical studies, um, whatever the, the area of study might be, when you are starting to discover a truth, most people then begin to question the the viability of that. And like, is that really true? Is that how it happened? And you start this process of how feasible is this? And then in the exploration of the facts, you discover that, oh yeah, that is exactly how it happened. You know, so, you know, how did America get discovered? I mean, it's crazy. You mean a guy took off in a boat and didn't really know where he was going, kind of, and he just stumbled. And it seems a little far-fetched, you know, but when you start to dig deeper and you do all the research, then you finally discover that, no, that's yeah. that's what happened. And it's it's crazy, and it's not... Um, it's not that hard to believe when you get it all in line. And so I think that's what um, asking the questions and having the doubts takes us on this journey of discovery. And when we go on that journey of discovery, I am completely convinced that the end result of that will be, I believe in Jesus and I want to become a passionate follower of his. Absolutely. And like, I think Jesus is confident in that. Otherwise he'd be like, no, no, get away from me. Not come look yeah, at, come closer, come take a closer. Yep. Yeah, I can't wait for the rest of the series. It's going to be great. Yep, I'm uh, excited to get going on it. We have three weeks in it, and um, we'll see how it turns out. Awesome. Well, thanks for coming in. You're welcome. We'll see you guys later in the podcast. See you. Welcome back to the Think Differently segment on the 167 podcast. One of the things that we're doing in the 167 is we want to challenge you to continue to read your Bible and think about things differently. And so I'm picking up from last uh, time that we were together on Think Differently uh, to talk about this series on Job. We talked last week about how lots of people go to the book of Job to answer the question, why does God allow people to suffer? Why is there suffering in the world? And actually, that question can be solved in the New Testament. There's plenty of verses in the New Testament. I can think of 14 really off the top of my head, uh, 14 different reasons about why you might be experiencing discomfort and suffering. We've actually preached messages about that here in New Life. Um, but really, I wanted to take a look at Job because I think that most people have a misconception of Job when they read it. And so the last week we talked about kind of the prologue to Job how it's this kind of play that happens, but I think it is an actual event. I think that someone wrote a play about an actual event. I'm going to show you why. Um, But here uh, in the second session of that, we're finding Job who has been the subject of an accusation. We had Satan, which means the accuser, who is kind of the DA there in heaven. He's supposed to persecute us. He's supposed to prosecute us uh, to God and say, hey, these are their sins. These are their crimes. I can find them guilty. I can prove that they're guilty. I've got the photo evidence. And either at the end of the time, either Jesus says, no, 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 I already paid for their sentence though. They're guilty, but I already paid for their sentence. Or we get accused of that. And so Satan is in the presence of God. He's prosecuting cases. And God says, hey, listen, uh, consider my servant Job. And, and Satan says, well, the only reason that Job serves you is because you do nice things for him. You protect him basically from me. And God says, well, I don't think that that's true. And, and Satan says, the accuser, well, turn him over to me and we'll see. And they said, okay, fine, go ahead. And God says, but don't hurt him. 
And so here we are, and we're picking that up, and here's what we find from Job. Job is minding his own business, and all of a sudden, in one day, he loses everything. He is arguably the most wealthy man on earth at this point. He has seven beautiful children that love him, that clearly live on this kind of huge farm. He's got this huge land. He's almost his entire nation. He could have been a contemporary of Abraham um, or and rivals necessarily of, you know, like as far as what he owns and his children. And so um, these messengers, one after another, they keep coming to him and saying, hey, listen, all the bandits took your sheep. Hey, listen, fire came from heaven and it consumed all the camels. Like you, he just loses absolutely every, every part of his wealth. And in that, one of the messengers come and says, hey, listen, all seven of your children were feasting at one of the brother's houses and the roof, this wind comes up and a roof caves in and, you, and all seven of your children are dead. And so this immense grief just hits Job and he tears his robes and he sits in ash and you know, it's not enough that all of his wealth is gone. It's not enough that all of his children are gone. His wife actually tells, actually accuses him and says, you must have done something to anger God and God is punishing you. I'm blaming you for this. You should just curse God and die. So essentially he's losing his marriage because his wife is accusing him of all these things that are going on, saying it's your fault. And Job is sitting in a pile of ashes and wondering what God is doing or what is God not doing. And so this is why I want to address this because a lot of people say, oh, I feel like Job. And I'm like, man, Job's suffering is way up here. A lot of, sometimes people will, you know, they'll be like, I got a flat tire on my way to work and it was raining. I feel like Job. No, 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 no. Job lost everything in his life. If your bank accounts were drained and you lost every dollar that you owned and your, all of your children died and your family was dead and your, your wife or your husband came to you and said, I blame you for all of this you know, like there's nothing between us anymore. And you sat on a heap of ashes. Then you're like Job. Okay. And so, but I do think that most of us, it takes less suffering for us, but we all come to the place in our lives where we experience some kind of suffering, some discomfort, um, something that's random and evil in this world. We talked last week, my wife and I have experienced miscarriages. I've lost family members. I've lost friends in car accidents. There are things that seemingly happen that are seemingly random in this world that that inflict pain and cause the suffering. And so Job is sitting there in this pile of ashes and he's going, where is God? And he really is asking that question, is God behind this or is God allowing this to happen? And so it's really the question that most of us fair is, or ask is, is God fair? Is God a just God and is God a good God? And so for the rest of the book, after this has happened, um, well, briefly, you know, so he doesn't curse God yet. And then the accuser goes back to God and says, well, that's because you won't let me touch him. He is such a selfish individual that really, if you inflict him with a, a plague or a, you know, a sickness, then he'll curse you. And so God allows him to inflict upon Job sores and things like that. And so then it actually affects Job's body. And so then we get to get to the meat of the story, which is over the next book, it's three of his friends come to visit Job. You have... Uh, Eliphaz, the Timonite, Bilidad, the Shuite, and Zophar, the Namathanite. Okay. And I don't know if these are real people or they're people um, who are representative, but they represent kind of three major um, philosophical backings about when people say, 
oh, well, God, you know, is, you know, it's your fault, or it's not your fault, God's not just, or it's not God's fault, like he's just absent-minded, like he doesn't think about you, okay? And these are real, these people represent real arguments whether or not they are real people. I still think they're real people. Um, and so this part of the story is kind of told in this Hebrew poetry. Like I said, it's, this book is written almost like a Shakespearean uh, play. So um, I think that it is, we're going to, again, I keep promising you, we're going to get to the part where I, I tell you that why I think that this is actually real. Um, but regardless of it, whether it's real, the, the ideas behind these three friends are very real. The three friends represent all the questions that we all ask, and everyone comes from the same assumption. If I am good and wise, then I will be rewarded. And if I'm bad and stupid, I will be punished. Like, that's the that's the the case that each one of them is making. In fact, Jesus teaches us in Matthew 5 that this is not going to be the case. He says, you have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the people loved rain, like it made your crops grow. So he's saying he blesses the land. He reigns on the land of the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get in that? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? If you are great only your own people, if you greet only your own people, what are you doing far more than others? Do even the pagans do that? Of course they do. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect. So people say all the time that God is different between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And here's one of the oldest stories in the Bible teaching us the exact same thing that Jesus is teaching us in the New Testament. Because what people have is they have this idea of justice God in the Old Testament and grace God in the New Testament. And so they think, well, in the Old Testament, you just kind of got what you deserved. It was eye for an eye. If you did something bad, God punished you. And yet, what we're going to find is that the message of this story is counter to those friends' ideas and philosophy, their ideas and philosophy being that if I am wise and good, then good things will happen to me. And if I am bad or stupid, then bad things will happen to me if I am unwise. And I think that those can absolutely apply to us in consequences. But what we're going to see here is that's not always the case. And in fact, in the New Testament, Jesus tells us so. So, there are going to be bad things that happen to righteous people, and there are going to be good things that happen to unrighteous people. And we're going to ask the question of why. So join us next time as we're going to continue in Job to find out why is this this way. If you enjoyed this episode of The 167, make sure you like, subscribe, follow, get notified, leave a five-star rating and a positive review. Tell all your friends to listen as well. Make sure you go over to New Life gardener.com and check out all that we have to offer as a church and check out our messages online as well. Thanks for listening.